I'm sorry, you couldn't hear us. So let me, let me say again, I'm introducing uh, online, we have uh, Amy, Nancy, and Robert, who's in hiding. Here, Robert, you came out and say hi. There so uh, there we are with that. Okay, we're studying today's Psalms 42 and 43. So let's uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll jump on in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, we've, um, uh, Jennifer and Kathy have been saying the psalm for a while now. Fortunately, the, uh, every week is like a new psalm, so it's not like you had to read the previous chapters. We, we did give an initial introduction uh, from a perspective that the psalms are essentially the, the, the prayers of the church epitomized in the person of our Lord on whose lips most of the psalms make the most sense. And even today's psalm, we'll see how the kind of narrative framework or structure of it kind of fits in well with, with our Lord's life and the passion but also then how our life stories and their themes kind of connect to that. So um, <laughs> so what we've been doing is reading the whole psalm. So let's read all of 42. And then now and I should know that 42 and 43, a lot of people think that these were originally one psalm and got divided. Um, so, but now they're two psalms, so, so there um, That's the way it is. So I'll, I'll read Psalm 42. I'm reading for the New King James Version, so if yours is different, that's okay. Think about versions when you're reading, if you have a different translation, I highlight sometimes, because often, you know, the Hebrew word that is being translated doesn't have a direct equivalence, and you, some word can give a nuance to it that you didn't get in another translation. And sometimes the translation can give an implication that's not really there because you don't have an exact equivalence of words. So, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mazar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, um, there's a certain, um, you know, there are probably themes that go through this, but um, we, we start with, with the deer uh, longing or panting for the water brooks, a thirsty deer coming up and, and being, um, being satisfied with, you know, the fresh springs coming down from the mountains. And so the psalmist then relates this to a longing for God. And this water theme then sort of prevails throughout the psalm. Where else do we see the water theme? On, on Psalm 23, where he leads me by the storm. But just in this psalm. Oh, in this psalm, I'm this. sorry. Verse 7, waterfalls. Your yeah, waves water. and your billows okay. have gone over me. So it's interesting, yes. the water went from an image of the refreshment that God will give me to the way that now God is, is you know, it's a little too much water here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or even uh, verse 4, where he says, I pour out my soul. Yeah. Yeah, in the tears there. I think this literally, my, my yeah. tears, in verse 3, my tears and my food. So you've got water, longing, tears, and I think pouring out my soul is, my, is sort of my tears for the things I'm feeding on or, or being sustained by. So there, there's, a, there's um, so what seems to be the setting of this psalm, not like, you know, year and date and particular location, but what's what's the psalmist seeming to be going through? Problems. Problems. <laughs> um, yeah. Epitomized by, by what? He's longing. He's yeah. longing for closeness to the Lord. So therefore he must not he must be in a place where he doesn't have that. Right. He, in other words, there's some it's sense of distance. Wilderness. Wilderness kind of experience here. Um and there's a lot of ways when we think about how we can pray the psalm ourselves. There's a lot of ways we can we can relate to this. Um, of course, uh, there's the ordinary experiences of trial in life where we don't see um, God in that moment, and we long for Him to. Uh, and I think it's also not just the here what we were thinking of not just in the fullness of the Christian life, it would be maybe not just bad things are happening rather than good things, but even the struggle on having trouble seeing where God is in it. Um, and so we should note, and we'll, we'll draw this out in these psalms, that that the that this is a, seems to be a, a geographical pilgrimage in the psalm. He's away from the temple. He longs to get to the temple. Um, yet in our lives, this this is something that is um, the spatial imagery reflects the spiritual truth. We want to be closer to God, but he's not. It's not a matter of. We have to make a pilgrimage 
you know, to 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 a shrine, but we're, we we have to make we have to go through a, a season of trial to to be able to see more clearly. The other um, aspect of this is is that the 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 tension is somewhat. inherent in the Christian life because in in the kind of uh, sense that the kingdom of God is here with us but not yet fully here with us there, there's a taste and not a fulfillment and that's always a longing um, uh, as as uh, St. Paul says we who have the first fruits of the spiritly uh grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So the tension between the way that the kingdom is here and the way that the kingdom is not here always has a little bit of this in it. And even in even in the sense of, of um, this is the kind of what we call the mystery, you know, related to some of the things St. Paul's talking about in Ephesians in our uh, morning prayer reading we had this last week of the mystery, but this which we should and we talked about you know mystery Greek word mystery relates to the Latin word sacrament, which is really the background meaning for a sacrament is something that that reveals meaning and so we gather for the sacrament at the altar of God in some sense we enter into you in a real way we enter into union with God in Christ the spirit, but in a real way there's something unfinished about it. It doesn't complete the longing. There's an altar in that this one points to that we're looking. So, and I, I actually believe that this is the essential experience of the Christian life, and that and that all almost all of the the sort of eschatology errors um, that we encounter in our time result from privileging. Overprivileging the way the kingdom is here, or overemphasizing the way it's going to come but is not here, and the tension between the kingdom is here and we're living in it, but it's not fully here, or is the is the contours of of sanity and right witness in the world, while at the same time knowing that the world is not the telos. This world is it is not the telos. It's why the sense of witness. Um, and it's a, you know, there's a lot of, this, this informs, we're not going to get into this, don't, don't, uh, about, you know, the, the whole lot, you know, people, people get involved in politics and, and causes that are, that are and, and the problem is not opinions, the problem is always when someone makes a temporal end, the goal, rather than just the faithful witness in the thing. And, and when we're living in the kingdom, everything we do, as St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, that, that we don't need, this is the sense, that so we don't need a an immediate benefit from what we're doing for it to be have value. So some of the greatest acts of faithful witness and training for the truth means you get killed for it. That's called martyrdom. Um, don't want that to happen, but but that's not a failure from the standpoint of the kingdom. That's a, that's and because martyr and witness are the same word in in Greek language. So that tension, the way in which 
we experience that tension. And sometimes in our, in our lives, it seems like we experience more of the presence. There's a joy, a fulfillment. And sometimes we feel more of the absence. So I think this psalm is on the trying to discern the presence of God in the midst of where I am right now. So as a deer, the soul is longing for God. Pant has an interesting nuance, so I kind of like longing rather than uh, uh, just as a, because it, it, does, it, can, it, can, it can then deal with the, the, the desire. But my, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And we should note here to come and appear before God is it really seems something more really like see the presence or face of God. And we've noticed in a couple of other Psalms we've done how frequent that countenance seeing image is, is, is equated with to see him. Of course, in the tradition, there's this thing called the beatific vision where we finally see God. You know, and that, that whole seeing is brought out, for example, in the, um, Easter narratives in John's gospel where they don't really see, they see, but they don't see and they, and how we, and, and then, um, and they see, <laughs> and then in, in the St. Paul talks about, we all with unveiled faces beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image. But it's the idea that seeing Christ changes us. And that, so that plays into, I want to come up here and see God. And that's what will make us um, at ease. And I would say that this this happens when we see God, even when there still are struggles. We get a little insight into, okay, I think I see something God's doing here. So while he's longing for the water brooks, verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. He's not drinking at the water brooks of, you know, um, while they continually say to me, "Where is your God?" And I think the uh, thirsting for for God, we we also probably want to think of the, you know the um, the encounter Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, uh, you know, I'll give you living water that, that bubbles up. And that's I think it's the idea, which is and and water essentially in the scriptures becomes an image of the spirit. So the spirit is what comes to us, and you know, and connected to baptism and. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. So what does this express? In the house of the Lord. But what in his experience of life, where is this experience situated? In the past. Well, it's, it's, interesting, it's an interesting question because some were, you know, there are some people who think this, oh, maybe this is the Babylonian exile, but it, it probably is not that because we get to verse 6, all the geography is in Israel, Jordan, Hermon, the hill. So it seems for some reason he's being kept away 
from the joyous celebration of the feasts. We're not told why. It just, he's, he's going through a time, I, I feel like he's going through a time of feeling alone or isolated. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. making me sad just thinking yeah. about yeah. what he's going through. Yeah. You know, because he's so... Yeah, a, a sense of distance. Longing for God and... Sorry. I think we've all been there. I think yeah. Time is one that we have gone through different, different you know, trials in our lives. This is why it's so important to have Psalm Fury your party life. These 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 thing these experiences touch our experience in ways that you can't explain. And and it is why praying them this is this is how we feel sometimes. When I when am I gonna be there? And um um so it could be, I mean, because he, he he seems to be physically exiled from Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that I, I'm just upset so I can't go to the feast. But somehow he is. And we're not really told. It's a, it's, a, it's a curious combination of geography and spiritual exile. And I think for us, that exile would be the longing for the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, that, that, that we can see and participate on one level, but not fully yet. But he has a remembrance. He remembers the goodness of God. And that's a big biblical theme that, that comes up a lot in the Old Testament. Do this to remember. And when we're really in exile spiritually, we have to go, oh yeah. Yeah, God has been there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've got some memory of his presence. Because it, it's funny how in the spiritual life, how quickly that sense of yeah. confidence and God's with me can just <laughs> go like, oh, I'm abandoned. It's all it's over. <laughs> it's like, what just happened? So remembering, and I think this is part of the the the, um, the themes that we have, say, in, in Eucharist and daily office, which are liturgical ways of remembering um, they're always bringing us back to what God has done. Eucharist specifically, what God has done. Then, what God is doing in us. And in it's an experiential moment of connection that's undeniable here with physical elements of bread and wine. Christ comes to me and is with me wherever I am in this thing. Um, and that act of remembrance is connect, and then the the, the 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 prayers and lessons that connect our story with His bring us into. We remember what He He has done. We experience some sense of Emmanuel, that is God with us now, right where we are, and then it gives us hope, which is going to come up here. Okay, we know there's an outcome here that is good because God is good. And this was so important to remember like this because if we don't do that. We forget, and then we misinterpret the current moment. Instead of reconnecting with Christ in the present moment, connecting our stories with his story, the cross, the resurrection, we start, oh no, I'm alone. We start catastrophizing. We start um, becoming reactive. We start doing things to cope. That's what is really unfaithfulness is born of, is more um, just a sort of abandonment of one's prayer. Because you, you, when you abandon prayer, you abandon the experience of Christ's presence with you in. 
I think this is a really big thing culturally because um, a lot of people mistake a, an intellectual understanding of Jesus saying, I'll always be with you, with an experience of his presence with you. Mm-hmm. And so you know in your mind he's always with you, but what you're experiencing because of perhaps a life not ordered in some prayerful way, but ordered in some chaotic way, what you're experiencing is something else. And a lot of the ways people kind of drift away is they that they're what they believe in their mind just isn't able to come into uh, and this is why this is why we always privilege the life of prayer. It's the experience of God's presence cultivated in our prayer that that um affirms with us the language of scriptures, Lord, I'm always with you. I think remembrance also to remember that what you're going through now isn't forever. You know, I mean, that you, over the course of time and over the course of your life, there are the valleys and the mountains, and, and that remembrance that God is always with you and will be there is, I, I, I think that's part of this too. I think that's really important because I, I think that we'll, we'll measure our own growth in the faith next time we, we hit that challenge by a little less catastrophizing. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it won't completely fall apart as Brother John tries to say. There's no particular reason that your worst fears will come to pass. Um, can you speak to though when you don't feel the presence? I mean, I know that being we are in the presence of God always as as His people, but there are times where you're in those valleys in your life, you don't feel the presence of God, and that's where this remembering. Yeah, helps. yeah. No, there's an interesting interplay there. This absolutely true. as we don't feel it, but um, is I think why the the objective sacramental presence is significant and even sitting in spaces because um, the truth is is, and this is something that I think is really significant the truth is that Christ is with you so the experience that he is not is a function of perception based on circumstance Mm -hmm. so um, to, to reconnect, usually we, we, we um, and, and experiencing them, this is something I think religious experiences is, there are a lot more contours to it. In our culture, we've tended to make it ecstatic or charismatic or so, unless someone is, hey, things are great, you know, the, the sense of God is, is not with you. Um, but when we connect to you know, say the story of the life of Jesus in Gethsemane, um, where he clearly understood his father was with him, but there was presence, but also struggle. So cultivating the sense of God with us in difficult places is a hard thing. It needs some stillness, some silence, because we talk about this, we talk about this in terms of contemplative prayer, what happens in those moments is um, we have lots of thoughts and feelings circling around, and we become very reactive to them. 
and that reactivity to to um, what one author calls the weather circling around us um, causes us to lose sight. So we have to spend time. We have and, and but we should not experience. We should not think really difficult times, the experience of God of presence is going to be, you know, take away every negative emotion. It's going to be the sense, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I see are And there's something about this, too, for those who, um, you know, read that book, um, uh, A Quiet Mind to Suffer, uh, what this, that this is a guy who was diagnosed with OCD, um, and he did his prayer, he realized contemporary what he realized was that Christ might not take away all the thoughts, but he could be present with him in them. And I, I think um, the more we understand Christ's presence with us in the actual spaces of our life the more distance we can get from the afflictive thoughts and see that they're not really us. They're thoughts we have that we have to um, not react to. But in our culture so often, we're, we're more, we have to um, help, you know, or, or God's presence is characterized as a kind of a fix. So okay, okay, let's pray. How you yeah. doing? Oh, you're doing good. Okay, <laughs> there, you okay. can't. There's not the sense that um, the help we really can give is because what we need to know in our times of suffering is that Christ is with us. The main way we can know Christ is with us is when other when we experience that in our prayer, but also when other people can be with us as Christ in it without needing to um, fix it for us, but can just sit there with us, and that would do it. So that's the other thing I think about this with the sense of his presence, because he went with the multitude, but now he's all by himself. And, you know, sometimes we're going through uh, trouble. We don't necessarily want to be around, you know, a few hundred people. But it, it I think it's really perilous not to have a few people that you can go hang with and and be honest with and and, and who won't require you to be anywhere other than you are. And that's okay. God's with me in this, and I'm gonna. That that sustains us. It doesn't feel any better, but we know that, and that's the hope that He's gonna. And it, we go on here. He says uh, in verse five, "Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquiet within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him with the help of His countenance." Um, it's interesting here. This is portrayed as a kind of an internal dialogue. Why are you cast down? Why disquieted? Uh, I'll, I'll yet praise him. Um, so holding on to hope is, um, and hope is important. It, it, it's the idea that that it's the it's the assurance of the fulfillment of the promises of God for us that enable us to endure through the interim. And hope is cultivated by prayer and connection to others, I think. And, you know, the Word of God clearly is important, but, but when I talk about prayer, I mean the experience of what God's Word says. Because you don't really need it. So, for example, we're talking about what's going through this. 
you don't need a friend to come over and quote scripture to you and tell you Christ is with you. He needs just to sit down and shut up and a cup of coffee or a beer or a martini. Or <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Like Joe says, that's right. So, all that you're talking about today, we lose track of of being in God's presence because, and a lot of us like to take things into our own hands and do things that get us sidetracked instead of waiting on the Lord. And you're talking about somebody just coming waiting with you when you're distressed. Don't need to say anything. Just wait. Yeah, and I, just, I would just um, add to waiting and, and the word patience, which I think is better in, as a virtue of perseverance. Is I do think it's good to see the life of prayer as an active thing we do. It's why, like our own tradition of uh, you know, you can you know, psalms are objective things, but some objective form of prayer. That's what the church has given us. I can get up and pray. I can say, I can pray the office. I can remember the Psalms. I don't have to, uh, what am I going to do today? Oh, it's just there. <laughs> I don't have to conjure up a subjective feeling of euphoria. I, it, it sustains me. It's kind of like if you, um, if you want to stay in shape, somebody's just not going to go there. Well, okay. Four sets of that. Four sets of, you know, you, you have, if you, having something you, if you can just kind of do, and so I, I think, so waiting is, is waiting in our prayer. It's not becoming inactive. And uh, because there really isn't any neutral state that we're either actively living a life of, of willful connection to God, or if we go away from that, we'll start drifting into the thoughts and those, those things will become overwhelming. But if so, you say waiting in prayer is not what? Passive. Passive. Thank you. I never said that. But I like that. <laughs> <now>. Summarize. <laughs> I choose passive. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know. The Bible speaks that wait on the Lord. So that's an active thing, waiting on the Lord in your prayer, whatever. And then as you wait, obviously, you got to call you to do things. Even then, it, it may be just to pray today. It may be that there's always just never, we're never truly just sitting there. Although you might sit there for a while in prayer. So hope, hope in God. Hope comes up a few times in these psalms. And it's that term dialogue of, I'm not going to listen to the voice of despair. I'm going to hold on to hope. Verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. This is a sense of my, my sense of life force, my God. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mazar. Where would that be? There, uh, you know, the Jordan River, uh, heights of Hermon or the foothills. Mm -hmm. So it's just various geography throughout the land of Israel. So he's remembering God's greatness right now. Yeah. And his beauty, I think, too. Yeah. His beauty in creation. That always helps me thinking about that. Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, there could be, a, I mean, um, obviously the land, of, the land of the Jordan, so, you know, this is the land in which God has done things. Mm -hmm. It could also be where he is now wandering 
in his exile. So he's remembering God from these places. But again, remembering again. So it's the struggle. My soul is cast down, but I'll remember. I'm feeling low, but I'll remember. I'll hold on to, to the remembrance of God. And I would, I would say, therefore, for us, it would be wherever we are. That he is, he is there. Verse 7, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Again, here's overwhelming imagery. It, it reminds me of Psalm 69, verse 1, where it says, the waters have come up unto my neck. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. This one is like, no, it's over me. I'm <laughs> under water. He's under. <laughs> um, although, um, Father Hayden's sermon on baptism was really good on Sunday. Um, it does have a, a quasi-secondary uh, baptismal image here because the water overwhelms us and kills us, but that's the beginning of life. We're baptized into his death and buried with him, and Christ went under the water, uh, you know, as, as Israel went under the water in the Red Sea. So um, part of this then for us, I, I think, thematically in the Christian life is that the experience of being overwhelmed by by the sorrows of life um, and specifically um, by the enemy, which will which will come up. Um, but holding on to Christ in that means we're participating in that dying to attachment to the world which is going to come out into new life in some way. And I think this is something for us to, to, to really reflect on in the spiritual life, I, uh, is that when we're going through these kinds of times where God is really very distant, I mean, what it usually means is we're experiencing some kind of temporal loss, need, pain. Um, God's always doing something in us. And... It may be that um, that the really painful thing that's happening is the thing that is the painful surgery in us that that we need, that does actually will allow God to to remove, purify, and and allow new life to, to come out on the other side of it. Um, I hate this, but the fact is that we don't really change in a kind of self-help, oh, yeah, I should do this better than I do. Oh, I'll just do that. No, you, it's, it, we have to, our idols have to be pried away uh, from us uh, by, by seasons of purification. And this is really part of the Christian tradition. Um, uh, it, it's um, the book we're reading for men's, for men's group, um, uh, Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe, uh, 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 Huh? <laughs> I love that book. Yeah, I love that book. And he, 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 he but, but, but John, who led us, he talked about how the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit of having there's there's an experience of of comfort with the Spirit as an experience of impoverishment by the Spirit. That's where we'll come to. Okay, now it's and the impoverishment is you know blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is, is to detach us in order to enrich us, but he can't enrich us until he, he detaches us. And so 
this is why I think we, we shouldn't, um, we have to be, culturally we're just, so much of faith tends to get caught up in, in the basic market consumer framework that if God is with us, then things will go good and all of our needs will be met. If he's not with us, then, or, or, if those, or conversely, if our needs are being met, then God's not with us. Whereas the, the tradition is always understood, no, in, in God is always with us and he's working in us according to what we need. And so we, we have to have our eyes on that kind of thing. <clears throat> Remembering God in the midst of it. Like evil in the waves coming over us, yes. Elton John has an old song I call Salvation. And the lyrics say, you must feel the sweat in your eyes. You must understand salvation. You know, you must go through these things in order. You must feel that sweat in your eyes. That is the work of the Christian life. In order to understand God's grace in your life. And I think it's a really powerful concept. The the uh, the book that uh, uh, I talked about, the guy talks about... Um, dealing with situations, the word he uses, sent, uh -huh. stuck with me, that, uh -huh. that, um, and he, he contrasts consent with um, resignation and rebellion. Mm -hmm. So we're going through a difficult time. Resignation is, oh, well, things are going to be horrible. Oh, well, poor me. God, well, you know, I may observe it. I'm a bad person. I'm a, whatever, however you want to frame the narrative of resignation. Or the other one is, the, the rebellion is, no, I will not take this. I'm going to pray, I'm going to work, I'm going to kind of control it. And so the consent is the understanding that we'll, it will, we'll trust that God is with us in this. And we'll, we'll enter into it with, with faith, looking for God to do his work. But that's a surrender. I think that, that speak to the to the enunciation, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, which is said to the Christian life of, of, of submitting to the will of God for our lives. And this is something I, I want to be, you know, that we have to work out. It doesn't mean every time a bad thing happens, we shouldn't pray for it to go away. But sometimes we enter the season when I was okay, this looks like my life will look like this. So let me embrace what God is doing here rather than, you know, become despondent or run from it. Right. Yeah. I, I like that word consent, too, in that book, especially, because um, it reminds me of us joining our will, taking our will and joining it. You know, it's our part in the yeah. in the marriage. It's so a willful thing. Consent. It's uh -huh. a willful, yeah. It's a, yeah. We have to do that for God to do mm -hmm. his work. We have to be willing to go there. Um, and there's your part where you consent to that. It's like, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to join you in this work. And I, I, I find my own experience of, of this is that when I know, when I get a sense of God's presence with me in something, I think I can deal with it. I, I actually find that if you get that sense of prosperity and ease and you like don't feel the sense of God's presence, that's a lot worse to me than the God's presence with you in, in struggles. So we, we can't equate outward conditions with with the, the, with where God is with us or not with us. Well, that's where the book of Job comes in. I'm so glad. Yeah. So, verse, verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
So God's loving kindness is hesed. This is a famous Old Testament word of his goodness. And so his song will be with him, a prayer to God in my life. But the prayer is, <laughs> I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the depression of the enemy? Now, this is notable, though, that, <clears throat> and this is something to say, you know, with, with, with Job in mind, that um, it's okay to pray, why, where are you? Because that's a prayer of faith. You don't ask where you are if you're not asking someone where you are. So prayers of lamentation that hold on to God are not. Um, uh, it's, it's why God commends Job at the end of a book where Job seems to be. Because even that questioning is a prayer, is a, is a prayer of faith. He doesn't deny that God is there. He wants to know. So um, I think it's important um, in our own healing, talking about this in some of the other psalms, um, that when we pray, we don't circumvent how we're experiencing the pain of the moment. Um, that is to say, so we go through a difficult time in our prayer today, yeah, this hurts, and to be able to embrace the part of ourself that's experiencing both the present thing and probably that connects to some other things <clears throat> and, and, and work through that um, in our prayer. Now, we're not going to let that then cause us to run off into some kind of unfaithful coping mechanism, but we're not going to deny it either. So, so I think that's why we shouldn't launder how we feel in our prayers because the psalmist certainly doesn't that's so beautiful about what the psalms give us permission to do and i think sometimes when we just kind of um cut ourselves off from that feeling that's when we act we definitely act out well this, yeah, yeah that's i mean this is right i mean it, this this is this is um i mean we talk about this a lot in various venues in our framework of spiritual life but the concept of the exiled emotionality, which is the the the, the, the which are usually which can be understood as um, parts of ourselves that bear emotional memories that we don't want to face, so we push them away, but they don't really go away. So they come, and that's what leads us into compulsive behaviors. Either you know, typically we'll be medicating or over functioning in work. Uh, so allowing those to allow ourselves to embrace our experience of our lives. And sometimes the healing point of a current struggle is it will resurface a similar theme of a past struggle that hasn't yet been, been processed. Um, what's interesting here, too, the, the, the language of the enemy comes up. And for us, um, we've already characterize this in terms of spiritual battle, what, what we call the enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the enemy is that voice that says, yeah, yeah, see God not with you. See, see this, see, see, yeah. Uh, and that's where, the, that's where a lot of the oppression comes from, a, or an extra dose, shall we say. You know, and I, um, because there's a certain heaviness that comes with that. And it plays off our own sense of guilt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So. This, this just made me think of that one time where God, I think it's the only time he ever said, 
where are you, was in the garden with Adam when that separation occurred. And but it's not that he didn't actually know physically where he was, that there was that separation. Yeah, he, yeah, it's he good. moved away. Adam yeah, moved away. Um, I just thought that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And he got to work and got the big leaves out. Well, it, it does go to say that we should say this so that um, in that sense that when we feel a sense of distance, separation, self-examination ought to be part of that. You know, mm-hmm. purifying. Do, have I, am I harboring something? And this is not inordinate guilt about every little thing that God is mm-hmm. digging up in your life. But it's right to to use trials for for uh, a purification of motive, because there's always a corporate nature to this too. We're always participating in the human condition. We we get measures of human fallenness that we maybe didn't do something, just came genetically. We can always reflect on mortality, you know, our human condition, our weakness, and it's a good opportunity to make a good confession. And that's how we, you know, that's how we, um, I, and we, when we did, um, looked at King David, um, King David as, as the model penitent, um, he was, um, he did do something wrong. He was exiled from God. It was interesting though, as a model penitent, um, he, he it, it, the tradition tells us the Bible tells us he repented. Um, your sins are forgiven, you won't die. Then he went into exile from the palace in Jerusalem. But God was with him, and we know God was with him because his sins are forgiven, and he's still been anointed. He's not been rejected. So there's a season of 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 um, consequence or discipline for David, and so sometimes we have to be willing to embrace that for ourselves. And, and, and that's like willingly embrace, okay, we'll go through this and let that, that um, time of trial have its purifying impact on us. So that's, that's a significant thing. I think that's what we think when Jennifer mentioned the garden is, of course, Adam, where are you? Because you, you separate from me by what you've done. And, and um, it's interesting, too, that uh, Father Joe Miller, but he, he made the observation to me that David is really the first biblical person to make a good confession. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is like, oh, I didn't, you know, they, yeah, I did it. <laughs> we have Psalm 51 kind of as the emblem of that. So, <clears throat> Verse 10. As with the breaking of my bones, um, Robert Alter says the translation is murder in my bones. So he's being, and, and this, this, um, <clears throat> this made me think of this verse. Made me think of Good Friday. Mm-hmm. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all the day long, "Where is your God?" Mm-hmm. And so, again, the journey then is we begin to see a pilgrimage of Jesus being, and it's interested. It's interesting here because Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And um, he's being rejected by the by the temple that's there, and he's dying outside the city. So, so there's a sense of alienation that would apply to that, where he wants to come to the true altar of God. Verse eleven: Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise and help of my countenance and my God. Again, hope. So he's. 
he's holding on to God through all this. It's visceral language, but there's no there's there there's agony in it, but there's no despair in it. And and that's 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 a key thing. And he'll yet he'll yet praise him. I shall yet praise him. So there's this like I'm gonna be praising God. Yeah. And now <laughs> Psalm 43, then, we'll just kind of jump in here, and it actually comes up with a, a different kind of a theme in, in verse 1. Uh, so, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation, or deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Now, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, in his little meditation on Psalms, makes the point that one thing that's strange for us about Hebrew language is that the psalm is always asking God to vindicate him, where we would more like, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) And so the the idea of vindication is strange language. Um, But I think it's reconciled in Christ because we understand that Christ is the bearer of our sins and the new Adam and the epitome of Israel um, takes on our, our condition and is faithful, and he can say, vindicate me. And God vindicates him in the resurrection. It's a judicial act in various words of the New Testament. And so we, in Christ, uh, are vindicated. That's exactly what justified means. Justified by faith means vindicated, means declared in Christ. And our point in that, of course, this is why for us... um, that the ongoing repentance, the willingness to examine our hearts, and it's, it's kind of the, the, the this, this thing I think is the paradox of Christian life that um, grace, which freely vindicates us, um, has the component of, of embrace and then conviction so that um, that our part in that is to let God reveal to us what is amiss and heal it. But he's revealing it as his, to us as his children, not as people who are separate, but people who are there. So our openness to that. So our vindication will be in Christ by faith, but it will also include our willingness to say, yeah, to purify our hearts and, and to become like Christ in our actual the working out of our lives. And it, it's the true, these, faith is always paradoxical like this. You're always justified freely by faith. Now, don't go, now go sin no more. And you're always, but so experientially what it means is we always want to come, we always need to experience the grace first. And in the place of grace and embrace, we can, okay, I'll, I need to, I want, I, and we, I think the motor for wanting to do better then is God has loved us. So our, our love for God and others comes out of his love for us, not of a sense of sort of striving to do what we probably can't do. And we, the life of prayer should be understood as a regular experience of this justification. We have to come back to that place to experience grace again. It doesn't go away from us. I'm not suggesting that, but we go away from it. We have to come back to it. Or, oh yeah, 
my sins are forgiven. And, and then we and then we find then that's where obedience comes out of that experience. But we'll tend to we drift as we try to I gotta do this, I gotta do this, we forget, and we get back into this sort of what the Jesus calls the flesh. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do we go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And the enemy in New Testament terms is the evil one that's revealed as the enemy in the temptation in the, in the wilderness. So the wilderness theme of this being a wilderness wandering in exile from the temple is, is the place, therefore, of spiritual battle. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. This makes me think of, you know, Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the light of the world. So your light, Christ will lead us, his truth will lead us, um, and bring us to his tabernacle. And we understand that this is a, a geographic pilgrimage image in the psalm. For us, it's, it's a, we're coming to the altar of God to to Christ, to God in Christ through the Spirit. Um, so, the spatial image helps us to envision that. I also think that um, <clears throat> your holy hill, your tabernacle, your temple, that that really, again, helps us to conceive of salvation in corporate terms. It'll bring us back into, into our place in the body where we can be connected with people. Because the, um, the exile we feel from God typically exiles us from close connection with other people. We're all alone somewhere. And, and this is why I think the full experience of being reconnected to God is also being reconnected to, to the body. And this is a, an, a problem of our culture where salvation is all individual, is it doesn't, um, we, we, can, we can be saved and feel very alone if we don't um, know others in, 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 who share with us in that, in that um, life of prayer and, and struggle of faith. So then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. This is always in Psalm 43, been a psalm that prayed in the tradition, in the Western tradition, especially before the Eucharist. Um, then we go to the altar of God, lead us. And the idea that the altar we now participate in points to the ultimate altar in heaven we long for. And that's that sort of inaugurated eschatology we talk about where it's here in a real way, but it's not completed. So there's always one. So the fulfillment doesn't take away the longing. <clears throat> Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, the help of my countenance of my God. So hope again. Mm-hmm. Hope is, that's the third time we've had hope specifically mentioned yeah. that we hold on to our prayer and hope. The prayer itself is faith. And um, so. Say that again about hope. Sorry. 
Well, I mean, I, so I, I just said that hope is, is central to the psalm. I okay. think it was mentioned mm-hmm. okay. specifically three times. And then you said yeah. prayer is... Well, faith. I said faith. I mean, the very fact that he is talking to God is the faith. Right. But faith is rooted in the hope. Okay. I'm holding on to God because I know that there, I'm going to see his face. I know there's going to be deliverance. Okay. I'm going to be restored. Okay. And, that's then, and that will be fulfilled. And remembrance. And remembrance. Yeah. And remembrance here is, is the thing that, that I can call to mind in the past that gives me the hope that this is going to happen yeah. again because mm-hmm. this is who God is. Yeah. He just acts this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, hope is a part of us knowing. Enter into hope. We know something. We hope in something that is that is based on history. So, uh, yeah, I I think hope. I think actually, think hope is very much related to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's it's hope can be seen as the the sort of um, the the object of hope that is the content of the future inheritance. But I think it's experienced it within us as a longing of the spirit. Um, um, we who have the first fruits of the spirit eagerly wait for the adoption, and the spirit we know is going to happen. So that's the knowing. We know it's going to happen, but it's it's something that um, is not just again cognitive. It has a cognitive component. We know what that looks so like. The spirit but it has reveals a the knowledge to us. Yes. And we groan. Yeah, that's yeah, such a bodily yeah, experience of groaning. Yeah, groan in the spirit. I mean, you could probably analogize it to human experiences where you long for connection with someone who you know is going to be there. Mm-hmm. And then this is then just transferred on to God, who is always, who we know now is going to be there in a way that's. Right. Here we are for today. Can't remember what we're doing next week. But, uh, I have a list, now, so I'll set it out. We'll carry on from there. All right, let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to see you all. Online, Robert, Nancy, Elizabeth, Mimi, and hey, Kathy and Jennifer, great to have you guys with us today. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. <laughs>